Hi, my name is Stephen Hackett. I'm the co-founder here at Relay FM, and I do this members-only podcast once a month with a various guest or two from around the network. That's what this episode was going to be, but once we got into it, I realized that we wanted to share this uh, with everybody. So this month, I am joined uh, by my friend Shelly Brisbane. Shelly is a tech journalist. She works in radio in Texas. She has a podcast here on Relay and a Parallel, and she's put together an incredible documentary about uh, accessibility in the iPhone. I thought we could talk a little bit uh, about that today. So, uh, Shelly, hello. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we we do a bunch of stuff together. So you're on Download pretty often, and we did Download together at WWDC. That's uh, right. Which, which was fun uh, in Apple's podcast studio that's not a podcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, podcast hallway, I guess you'd call yeah. it. It's a real situation yeah. there. And you told me about this uh, at WBC that you're working on this documentary. It's named 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. And there'll be a bunch of links over in the show notes. People can go check it out. And you've put it in the parallel feed as well. So people who are already subscribed there have already gotten it. But I want to talk a little bit uh, uh, about this. So you you tell the story of the iPhone and accessibility and you start uh, – 12 years ago, but really 10 years ago with the iPhone 3GS. What's the importance of that phone in this world? So the iPhone 3GS is the first phone to be accessible. And that means it's the first phone that had features for people with disabilities, whether that was blindness. In in that case, it was mostly for blindness and people with low vision. It also had one feature for folks with some hearing loss. But before that, the iPhone really didn't have any accommodations. If you couldn't use the screen at the type size that was available, or if you couldn't hear, or if you couldn't, uh, you know, uh, see the screen because it was too bright you were kind of out of luck. The only thing that was close to an accessible feature on the iPhone was that Safari had pinched to zoom, so you could zoom in on a web page. But it it really did leave a lot of people out. And 10 years ago, that changed because the iPhone 3GS got accessibility features. So I wanted to commemorate that because for people who could not use the device at all, that was a really significant change. And basically, all that excitement that the iPhone created in the tech world and in the, in, the, in the rest of the world, really, was absent from people who had accessibility needs. And so the 3GS was kind of their first opportunity to join that party. That's two years after the original iPhone, right? So the, the original was in 2007, the 3GS is in 2009. Exactly. I would imagine that two-year period, two-and-a-half-year period, was just brutal for so many uh, potential customers out there. Well, it was especially so because the Mac had become accessible a few years before, meaning that it had screen reader software. Screen reader software is what a person who's blind uses to access their computer so that the interface is turned to from, from text to speech. And the Mac had acquired a screen reader, and this little community of people who loved the Mac, who became Mac users, was growing. But when the iPhone came out, people who started sort of following Apple and being in that orbit were hopeful, but they didn't have the opportunity to play. And uh, people also who were using cell phones, but whether they were Apple fans or not, uh, were not having an optimal experience, shall we say. And so when the iPhone became available for just the same reasons that anybody else would want an iPhone, uh, those folks did too. And so it was a disappointment. I don't think a lot of people necessarily expected that the iPhone would become accessible initially, but I think as that device grew in importance and cultural resonance, the sort of gap between what their experience was and what everybody else was having the opportunity to do was greater. 
Yeah, I think you you do a good job in the documentary talking to people who were in that position, who had gotten maybe even gotten their first Mac when Apple added the voiceover in what, 2005 or so? Is that with Tiger somewhere in there? Tiger was the first accessible. Uh, and, and just to, to, to get in the real way back machine, before <laughs> Mac OS X, in the 90s, there were was third-party screen reader software, and there were a few accessibility features in the Mac OS. But there was this gap of about five, six years when there really was nothing. And that wasn't such a big deal if you had not been a Mac user, but there were actually Mac users who had uh, were quite proficient on Pro Tools and actually made their living as Pro Tools uh, professionals, musicians, and and uh, producers and the like. Who, when the Mac stopped being accessible, had to figure out another way, and it was a real big deal for them. And so, when Tiger became accessible, uh, some of those people <laughs> then they wanted Pro Tools to become accessible because it wasn't at that time. So there was this sort of roller coaster of, you know, can we depend on Apple to provide us accessibility? Should we just go on to the Windows solutions that are in a lot of cases more expensive, but at least more reliable? And different people in the community made really different decisions about that. But Apple was definitely, uh, there were a lot of opinions of opinions about Apple, I should, shall we say. <laughs> Some things never change, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. I was not aware of this in, you know, the 2007, 2009 uh, time period. So it, it was it was educational and humbling to me to to realize that this had been going on at that time where so many of us were just excited about the sort of the, the new and shiny. But I, I want to contrast that maybe to to a more modern Apple. So I think today, I think, um, and I want you definitely your input on this is obviously much more valuable than mine. But from from my perspective as someone who doesn't is not in this this accessibility community. It seems like Apple does a pretty good job at these features, and I'm curious if if you if you that's how you perceive it as well, and maybe contrast or compare something like the iPhone launch and maybe something more modern from Apple. Are they baking accessibility features in from the beginning, or is every time there's a new platform, are we sort of starting at zero again? They are baking accessibility features into almost everything they do from the beginning. The issue tends to be that when a new product like the Apple Watch or the Apple TV, something that's a really a brand new platform is released, mm -hmm. there's no certainty that accessibility is going to exist. And I think for those of us who have been around a long time, there's always this point you're waiting. Well, the Apple Watch sounds really interesting. And if you'll remember, there was quite a distance between when the Apple Watch was announced and when it was released, a period of several months. Mm -hmm. And so people didn't have any reason to be certain that accessibility would exist. And some of that was, you know, trepidation that, you know, what does Apple feel like it has to provide what people in the accessibility community need? And some of it was just, you know, not wanting to make an assumption. And I, you know, that's what I fault Apple for is there's <laughs> their famous lack of communica uh, communicativeness uh, absolutely extends to accessibility. And I'll remember, this is this is one that is interesting to me because uh, I remember in uh, 2016, they opened the, the launch, the they did the launch event for the MacBook with Touch Bar. And they opened that event with a video about accessibility. And they mm -hmm. had a person who was a filmmaker uh, at a Mac. Uh, and she had uh, 
a, a, a device on her head so that she could control her Mac. And it was a great video. A lot of people would call it inspiring, which is kind of a cringy word for those of us in the accessibility community. But then when they announced the Touch Bar Mac, there was no mention of, well, does it support voiceover? Does it take advantage of voiceover? Does it do Zoom? What does it do? And so it was just sort of a funny like dis, uh, disconnect between the PR. It would have just taken them a, a brief moment to say, and the Touch Bar provides is completely accessible, which it is. Uh, because it's a visual interface item that somebody who uses Zoom can interact with, a voiceover user can interact with it. But but that that lack of information and that sort of, once a product is out there, I think people, whether they be civilians out there in the world or the press who kind of follow this stuff, have better access to information and can make better assumptions about what Apple's going to provide. But when a brand new platform comes out, there's a, there's a period of uncertainty, shall we say. In one hand, that's like that is exciting to me to hear that they're doing a better job on day one with features. But I would love to be in a world, as I'm sure everyone else would be, where we, there's not that guessing game, right? That either Apple states it clearly on day one with everything they're doing, or they get to a point where people simply expect it to, to be a, a, a robust product, not only for consumers who don't need these features, but especially for consumers who do. Sure. And I think that it's it's not so much that the expectation is that the accessibility explanation will be complete and detailed. But we, we were just at WWDC where accessibility actually had a lot of prominence in both the keynote and the State of the Union and elsewhere throughout the week. And there were surprises in what we learned, which are great. As, as, a, as a person who uses accessibility, I'm not expecting to know everything before the keynote any more than anybody else is. But what I... I learned that that products that I was already using were getting new accessibility features. Mm -hmm. That kind of surprise is welcome and exciting and fun. And when you see that big accessibility icon up on the giant screen along with the other icons, that sort of lets you know that you're basically an equal citizen from a technological point of view. And the way they pitched it in the State of the Union was about, hey, developers, this is something you ought to do because it's the right thing to do, but also it's really straightforward. Now, that's different than we have this whole new platform and it's great and it's got this feature and that feature. It'll be available in a month and no assurance that it's accessible. I feel I feel like those are kind of different sets of expectations. Uh, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about this uh, this documentary. I was telling you before we got started, sometimes I listen to things that my friends make and I'm jealous of how good it is. And, and I had that experience this morning finishing this up just like... I know as a, an editor how much work and effort and love must have gone into this. You interviewed, I don't know, how many people pulling those together to build your narrative. So, I mean, I'm seriously in awe of the work you have put into this. I, I talked to a lot of people. I talked to, I think it was 14, something like that. Wow. And there are a couple of people who didn't get in the documentary just because a lot of people said things that different ways of saying the same thing. And so I, I kind of feel bad because there were some great interviews I did that just didn't quite make mm -hmm. it in. But I try to talk to a cross-section of people that I knew had interesting things to say. It was really important to me to talk to people who weren't just going to say, yay, Apple, or boo, Apple, or talk in platitudes. I talked to people for whom this stuff means a lot and people for whom this uh, experience of inter interacting with accessibility in some cases was a surprise, was an accident, as I say in the thing, the documentary. Mm. And um, it was great fun, and I have... Uh, as we say in the radio, lots of tape I couldn't use. I'm, I'm th considering making a parallel episode, which is just like 
the cutting room floor because my cutting room floor is littered with gold, actually. <laughs> That's fancy tape you have over there in Texas. I know, right? Gold, gold tape. Fancy. I'm going to melt it down. And <laughs> Gold tape, but actually just logic yeah. files and no one saw, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. Not as romantic, maybe. Um so you interview these you interview these people you you build your narrative. Uh, where do you start with a project like this? Do you start with the idea of hey you just want to mark the tenth anniversary of this and see where it goes? Do you have uh, a point of view or a statement you wanted to get across and then work from there, or is it or is it something diff- something else entirely? I wanted to mark the tenth anniversary. I also knew that I had some archival material because there were podcasts that were done around the time that accessibility came to the iPhone, both from the point of view of people who are now brand new users who who had this thing that they didn't have the day before. And also some of those same people were invited on podcasts that were done by people uh, at Macworld and people at the Maccast and Mac OS Ken who were like, hey, I've heard there's this thing called accessibility. What the heck is that? Mm-hmm. And so I I thought initially that a lot of what I did would be resurrecting big chunks of archival audio what it turned out was that the conversations I had with people 10 years on, some of those same people that's, that are in those podcasts, were more interesting and thoughtful. There's a little bit of, oh, my God, what just happened from the old audio that's great. But I was really glad to not have to rely on it. But it's so weird. And I was making podcasts 10 years ago. It's weird to think of podcasts as historical documents that inform yeah. <laughs> something right. that you want to produce. It's it's hilarious. It's also hilarious, by the way, to hear people that you know are younger than you say, well, I remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do a fair bit of Apple history reporting myself, and I don't think I've actually used any podcast content in any of that coverage. And I mean, that's like a topic for another time about how that stuff can be really hard to sort through. I'm sure for every, you know, 30 seconds of audio you used, you must have listened to God knows how much to find what you're looking for. It's kind of tricky to surface that stuff. But I think I think it was neat listening to it, to be back in the shoes of people in 2009 and, and before in particular, as this is unfolding in the news, is it, it's different to talk about the reaction with 10 years of, of hindsight, like you almost can't, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself. I almost can't filter out my, you know, or our like collective 10 years of knowledge and learning and get back to that point where it's new. And I, th- I think that's one reason I enjoyed listening to that stuff so much. Like, Oh, this is, this is really like the sort of the, the initial reaction before all this other stuff has come about in the last decade. Well, a couple of sort of radio tricks that I've learned over the past few years that I've been doing that sort of work is I kind of primed people because I I did start to have conversations where I would say, tell me about the day the iPhone became accessible, go. And they would go, well, uh, well, it was and then it wasn't and then it was. Mm -hmm. And you find out. You, you you plan a 15-minute conversation with somebody, and it ends up being a lot longer, but the best tape is at the end because people have sort of put themselves back into the headspace a little mm. more, and you've also primed them with a little information. You've told them something that they actually knew at one time but don't really remember, and they go, oh, yeah, that's right. Or you say, you know, I talked to so-and-so, and this is what they remember. And there's a fine line between giving them a little prompt and, you know, leading them to where you want them to go. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to make the story what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be what people actually remembered and what stuck with them. So I didn't, you know, play them their old tape or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I did kind of figure out having done, I, I, and I started, the way I started was I interviewed people that I knew the best and that I had the longest relationships with because I knew we could just sort of have an easy conversation and I could find out 
kind of what they remembered. And then I worked my way toward people that I that I knew less well and that I whose memories I weren't sure about, wasn't sure about. And that that seemed to work out. So I, I feel like it was helpful to me. You know, I've been around technology and as a technology journalist for a number of years, but it was helpful to me to have some more recent radio background because I think my interviewing techniques are better for having having had those experiences. There's hardly anyone else in our little podcaster community that has sort of that side of it. And people think about, I think about radio being very different from podcasting, but I would imagine there are, of course, lots of skills that you pick up on one and then the other. Yeah, it's it's true. And, and it's it's funny. I I mean, my, I do a show called Parallel, and the point of it is there are communities that don't normally talk to each other, so let's bring them together. And I feel like there are a lot of parts of my life that are like that. So there's the sort of tech podcasting community, which is really different than the public radio storytelling sort of model of how, you know, things are produced. And they're they're really different. But I like I have one foot in each and there are, you know, two or three other things in my life where I feel that way. And I don't know how that happened for me, but I find it's interesting. And it actually makes me a little curmudgeonly about the status quo because it makes me think, well, that's the wrong way to say it. It actually makes me less curmudgeonly about the status quo. It makes me want to shake stuff up because I feel like whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we're a tech podcaster or a radio person or a you know, a mainstream journalist or whatever, an accessibility person, whatever it is, there's a tendency to like go with what and who you know and stick to that. And I that's the thing I find super infuriating and why I sometimes lack patience with a particular medium or even a particular set of set of podcasts because I'm like, wait, there's another way to do this or there are other people that we're not hearing from. So I, I like to do that. And I don't do it as much as I as I as I could or as I wish I did. But that was part of this process was talking to people from, you know, different places who came at this from from really different perspectives. So moving forward from the documentary, uh, you said you've got some some stuff that you would like to share. Do you have any concrete plans about kind of what happens next in this project? Yeah, I have. I'm going to put some the bonus content probably on the website first, and then I'm going to issue at least at least the next two episodes of Parallel are going to have bonus content. And uh, the next one is going to be I did two interviews with developers, one with Marco Arment and one with a guy named Matt Gemmel, who produced a lot of uh, accessibility controls and components back in the day and, and shared them freely. And the combination of what those two guys have to say about development for iOS and for accessibility was super interesting. And, they're, and again, you know, cutting room floor gold. So I, I'm going to put that together as one episode. And then I I talked to a friend of mine who's, who's in radio this morning, and I jokingly said I was going to do this, and she encouraged me. So I might, I have all this great tape that I cut up in order to physically put the documentary together and, and that I did not use. And, and I said, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit down and play the tape and talk about it and not even edit. And she said, you should do that. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I'm brave <laughs> enough to do it, but that's kind of my next cut because they're just, they're just great stuff that people said in, in soundbite form. So who knows how it'll turn out. But there, there's just great stuff that there wasn't room for. And the, the thing is 37 minutes long. It's probably too long as it is. I, I would love for some of that stuff to get out. And then there are other interviews. So I don't know whether three episodes of, of Parallel is is too much, but I know that at least on the web I can put bonus content out probably in, you know, 30, 40 minute chunks, something like that. I'd say put it put it everywhere. <laughs> so to, to wrap this up, let's maybe circle back to where we started. So we started talking about the iPhone 3GS, Apple with what, well, of course, we didn't know it then, but now obviously it's the most important product. I think the 3GS was still too early, at least for me to, to recognize that. Uh, 
it's the most important product. They've they've improved that ex- that set of accessibility features over the years. Um, so I guess I have a two part question. One, uh, what do you consider maybe some for lack of a better term, low-hanging fruit in this arena that that Apple should go after next. And that could be on the iPad, iPhone, Mac, whatever. Uh, and secondly, looking at Apple uh, and and maybe even the in, uh, at the industry as a whole, what do you wish, you know, if you could just wave your magic wand, what would you change about these companies and the way they approach accessibility? The low-hanging fruit part is difficult because Apple's accessibility suite, especially on the iOS devices, is pretty mature. Now, the, the question is going to be, as things like iPadOS come along, is accessibility going to move in a natural natural flow with it? In other words, when we have uh, new gestures for multitasking and uh, moving through apps and through Windows within apps, are those voiceover gestures going to continue to be uh, intuitive? So you can always create a new gesture, but does it seem logical? Does it flow just in the way that certain things make sense visually and in terms of they're satisfying in terms of the way you physically manipulate the touchscreen? Is that going to continue in accessibility? And I have reason to believe it will, but it's something that I've sort of got my eye on. The other thing I would like to see them do is there's there's a sort of a settings bloat that I think generally mm-hmm. iOS has, and I'd like to see accessibility. Accessibility is not an exception to that. I, I for one, at the very sort of basic level, would like to see them create some sort of accessibility uh, uh, settings macro. So basically, you could save your settings in iCloud, and you could have them available on Ooh. whatever device you wanted. And so the three or four accessibility settings that I use and the, the speech that the, the the rate of speech that I want for my voiceover and the voice that I use and all that stuff can be saved and I can transfer it across easily. So those are just a couple things. As far as the way companies behave, uh, I sort of hinted at that earlier. I, I feel like Apple is getting better about how they communicate. And I have to confess that part of the reason I believe that is because they were kind enough to give me a little bit of their time and talk to mm-hmm. me at WWDC about this project. Uh, but I don't, not everybody has that opportunity. And I I do think they are kind of getting the message. And some of it, I feel like, is is a little bit of competitive pressure because the three major uh, companies in the mobile and desktop space, Microsoft, Google, and Apple, all had developer conferences this year, all had keynotes that included a mention of accessibility. And they weren't simply saying, accessibility is a social good. Isn't it nice? What a, a wonderful, progressive company we are. They were saying the way we're implementing accessibility is an example of technology that we have. That's what I want to see. I'm not interested in your social capital as much as I am. How are you using the technology that you create to make it possible for everybody to use your stuff? So communication and finding ways to creatively exploit the accessibility, the the, the, the uh, technology. Uh, innovations that you're creating for the benefit of those who use accessibility. That seems reasonable. I, I'm, I could take that. Uh, Shelly, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Where can people find you online if they want to read more about what you're doing? So the documentary is at 36seconds.org. You can download it. You can stream it. There's also a full transcript and bonus content will be arriving soon. Here on Relay FM, I do Parallel, which is at relay.fm slash Parallel. Uh, if you want to uh, chat me up on Twitter, I'm at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. And if you just forget all of that, uh, you can go to Brisbane.net, B-R-I-S-B-I-N.net, which is where all my stuff lives. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out today. Thanks for having me.